Hello, my friends who listen to futureprimitive.org. I'm, um, I'm very touched today to be in a room, in the conference room at uh, Bioneers in Santa Fe with Nina Simons. Nina Simons is a social entrepreneur and co-CEO and co-founder of Bioneers. Bioneers is a national nonprofit that helps highlight, gather, and disseminate breakthrough solutions to our most pressing environmental and social challenges. Nina's life and work are informed by her passion for the natural world, women's leadership, systems thinking, and the arts capacity to shape culture and consciousness. I could say, you know, I could read you all of Nina's bio, but uh, I think what uh, I want to hear and the people who are listening is right here, right now, about Nina. So I want to begin by asking you my most burning question, which is how is your relationship to the sacred feminine and what does that mean to you? I experience my relationship to the sacred feminine as a part of my total relationship to the sacred, um, which I feel I have been cultivating and seeking to nourish within myself, especially over the last 10 years. Um, I reached a point well, I'm 54 now, and I reached a point when I turned about 40 that I realized that I was oriented to serving on a kind of lateral plane, mm -hmm. um, and that I very much understood my own self-worth in terms of how well I did that, and, um, and often evaluated my own sense of... Uh, contribution through either my work or my partnership mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and and so I, I very intentionally sought to strengthen my relationship on the vertical plane. I sought to really sort of shift from serving laterally to serving vertically mm -hmm. so that instead of recognizing a need out there in the world and knowing that I had some capacity to respond to it and then responding, which was how I experienced the lateral, mm -hmm. I wanted my work in the world to be informed from a deep inner relationship with the sacred mm -hmm. and from something that resonated with the essence of this particular instrument that happens to be me right now um, rather than just wanting to be useful. And so, um, so I think over the last 14 years since then, I have been both cultivating a relationship with myself and with the sacred, and at the same time sort of discovering a new identity that has more to do with being a woman than I ever understood before. Um, I think maybe because of my generation, I grew up 
in the immediate aftermath of the first wave of the feminist movement. And so um, I remember graduating from high school and then college and thinking, well, I'm going to be moving out onto a level playing field because those women have fought those fights and, and now I'm set to have it be equal. And I remember you know, years of experiences where I was disabused of that notion, of course, mm -hmm. and realized that there was a lot more work to do, but still had kind of my, my primary identity connection to being a woman was sort of being at the short end of the stick, was realizing that although I had the benefit of those women's work to stand on their shoulders, I was stepping onto a playing field that was always tilted against me in the business world, in leadership, mm -hmm. um, in the financial world, and that, that it was not even, and it was not fair. Um, and, and so I didn't have a very strong sense of my own identity as a woman, except in that I knew that it counted against me. And, and I think over the course of this journey to really identify my own assignment and shift from the lateral to the vertical, and part of what happened for me was uh, a recognition that what I serve is ultimately the reemergence of the, the feminine within us all. And that that's sacred just as life is sacred. And that all of the environmental and social challenges we face can be seen as an imbalance between the masculine and the feminine. Mm -hmm. And that in many ways that's been probably as damaging to men as to women. So I, I find that I have kind of a dual assignment. And some of it is about women, and some of it is about the feminine in a larger sense that's universal. So what I'm uh, intuiting here is that the women of my generation, I'm 10 years older than you, had come out in a political way. Mm done the best we could to infiltrate the political. And then your generation, and you in particular, came out and started, after a while, exploring the spiritual aspect of woman's presence. And of course this is linked to man, but of woman's presence in this world. So I would love to hear about just that. I mean, let me come to, you see, you have worked with nature and with women, the natural world, the natural world. So could you speak about the correlation between the natural world and women. <laughs> <laughs> wow, what a great question. Oh, oh thank you. Um, I, I'm often startled at how much more strongly I can sense what I mean here than I can put it into words. Yeah, yeah. It's often harder in words, but... Um, sh 
sure. <laughs> there were so many places your question took me. Um, <laughs> you know, because I, I actually thought about how your generation, the work of your generation in advancing a feminist cause was so necessary. And at the time, I remember really rejecting it because I found it angry. Mm-hmm. And it didn't appeal to me. I didn't want to be like those women. Um, and it's curious to me now that I feel like, you know, I, I'm starting to perceive my own learning, at, my own evolutionary learning as kind of a spiral, just like nature's most basic form. And, um, and I'm finding myself revisiting the question of anger and finding that there is tremendous use value in a right relationship to anger, which I had not previously known. And so I'm in a very active inquiry about that. But what you asked about was uh, the relationship of nature and women. And, you know, I, I feel like nature has been my place of reverence and my place of learning and my place of healing for as long as I can remember. I just remember being a little child and having this experience of going to a creek and falling into a state of wonder Mm -hmm. and just that I could be there for hours watching and playing with salamanders and just um, there was something about it that fed my soul in a way that nothing else did. And because I grew up without any religious framework, um, it took me a while to understand that nature was my spiritual source, actually, in that way. And as I've gotten older, what's become most um, riveting and amazing to me about nature is her fecundity, is that you know, now when so many of her systems are under assault and are being chaotically impacted by the collective impacts of our actions, um, the oak trees still, you know, burst forth with this incredible, vibrant, light green each spring, even after a winter with so little rainfall. And so I think that there is a way that because in human history, in the history of our species, of course, women are the bearers of birth and death. Mm-hmm. And nature is our greatest teacher, I think, about birth and death also. And before I was even really thinking about this stuff, I couldn't help but notice how my menstrual cycle would time up with the cycles of the moon and how when women were together, our cycles would all sync up. And there's some sort of a way in which I have come to understand that our relationship with our own bodies lives in the realm of the feminine, as does our relationship with the body of our home, the earth. Well, to come to your book, Moonrise, Um, Terry Tempest Williams has written the introduction and uh, I think and feel that her work is 
very much a celebration of the feminine translating the natural world to us. So would you like to speak a little bit about that introduction? Hmm. Well, uh, uh, Terry Tempest Williams has long been one of my primary mentors. You know, before I had ever met her personally, I remember just reading her book, Refuge, and the way that she was creating a new form by um, fluidly translating between the landscape and her personal experience of her mother dying. And, uh, and I was just awestruck by how beautifully she made the connection between the inner landscape and the natural landscape. And that's, you know, her writing kind of reflects how I experience the world. So I felt as though I had discovered somebody who had a voice that um, spoke my language. And, and when she, she wrote an introduction that's called Milk and Blood, uh, and really I think it speaks to the deeply essential nature of um, our sense of connection and of how mm, <laughs> whether through our blood or our milk or our tears or the fluids of our home earth um, we are all one body when it really comes down to it and um, and I think she she speaks from that place of uh, spiritual oneness and interconnectedness in a way that uh, awes me. <laughs> and she was also an important mentor to me, Joanna, in that, like many of the women in that book, I think. Um, she modeled for me that it was possible to take various different aspects of who I am and weave them together into one braided, unified whole. And I remember as a younger woman thinking that I had to make a choice about what I would become, you know, and that I would have to become either a producer or a writer or an artist or a you know, one or the other of these things. And and it's been such a joy to me as I'm, you know, fully in the in the middle part of my life to realize that I don't have to relinquish parts of myself in order to become whole. And that as Terry taught me, it's possible to be uh a person of the sacred and a poet and a naturalist and an author and a lover all at once. Wow. <laughs> not a bad job description, no, eh? Not at all. <laughs> it's a great job if you can grow into it. <laughs> um, I forgot what I was what I was thinking about because I was listening. <laughs> Which good. Is, which is a really good thing. Okay. Yes. I know. It's about stories. Oh. And so 
Some might say that the world is made up of stories. The Biennials Conference, uh, one of the representations in, in my mind of the Biennials Conference is that it tells stories, you know, like uh, Janine Benius tells stories about na- after observing about nature. So I think that some really nasty stories have been told in the past, okay? So perhaps you could recollect some of the stories, not necessarily from the conference, but that you feel will change the way we behave in the world. The stories I've been thinking about the most recently are stories that are about leadership. And I often think of them as uh, a call to purpose or a call to assignment. Um, I think there's a, a wonderful Jewish myth that before every soul is born, it knows its own assignment. Mm-hmm. And that then in the course of being born, we forget our assignment. Mm-hmm. And if we're lucky during the course of our lives, we have this detective story to follow to find our way back into knowing what our assignment is. And so, because as I have had the benefit of 20 years of graduate school through Bioneers, (laughs) it's kind of remarkable to look back and realize that. But um, what I realize is that I've been shaped by all these stories. And they are stories of a future that's within our grasp today. And, and they're stories that paint a picture that's very different than um, the stories that have gotten us to this place, the very damaging stories that you make reference to, some of which have come through reli- religion, some of which have come through governance and corporations and all kinds of ways. Um, but often through systems that tend to be known as isms, you know. And uh, so I've been thinking about and, and really scanning for pattern among the stories that are stories of people being called into uh, an assignment. And, and what I've come to understand about it, that's what the whole Moonrise book is made up of, is really mm-hmm. stories of women and some men who um, had that call. And, and responded in their own very unique ways. And, and my sense has come to be that uh, the Holy Grail, in a sense, is when we can match uh, the thing that lights us up the most, the thing that uses us the best, and that brings us the greatest joy with a need in the world for reinvention because we're alive at a moment where everything needs reinvention. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I think that there's some magic in finding that connection between that ingredient that lies within each of us that's really unique to who we each are and, uh, and that need out there. Um, the stories, let's see, stories that I really love most. I mean, I love so many of them. Um, one, 
Well, I love the stories that are about finding the medicine for what we most need and how that somehow leads us into bringing ourselves as medicine into the world. Um, I think about a woman named Kathy LeMay, who is um, a remarkable speaker and leader and author who's working a lot with both women philanthropists to help advise them about their philanthropy and also with nonprofits to help them raise money. Um, and her, her central issues, she's a very radical woman from Western Massachusetts, and she cares a great deal about women and girls and also about animal rights and nature. And, uh, and she tells a story about how she grew up uh, within the class of the working poor. And she tells a story about, that's in the book, as a matter of fact, about going to meet a woman philanthropist at the Four Seasons restaurant in New York, which is very, very fancy. Mm -hmm. And she was very poor at the time, and she said she got to the Four Seasons and she was completely intimidated. And she realized that a bagel was $14 and she couldn't afford anything. And soon after, the woman who she was supposed to meet shows up in a floor-length mink coat with high heels <laughs> and super done hair and, uh, and very meticulously made up. And the woman said, oh, you must be Kathy. I've been so looking forward to meeting you. Would you take my coat? And Kathy was aghast because she was an animal rights activist. Yeah. And she looked at it and she, and she blanched and she, she describes this as one of those life-defining moments. And she thought about what she could do. And, and what she did was she, she turned to the woman and she said, my friend, I would be happy to take your coat except that I'm an animal rights activist. And if I touched your coat, it would break my heart. So why don't we ask someone who works here if they'll take both of our coats, and then we can go sit down. And she said the woman turned to her and started to weep and said, do you know why I was late in meeting you? I was late because it takes me so long to get ready to leave my building because everything I do reflects on my husband and his reputation. And they became friends. They sank down. They became friends, and they wound up working together. But it was just an extraordinary moment of courage. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and Kathy laughs about how her coat was held together by duct tape, you know, at the time. And there was something about how she rose above the conditioning of her class that was so courageous and at the same time so non-judgmental and so loving that um, it was just a beautiful moment of leadership to me. Yeah. 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 And uh, it's the power of the I statements. Yes. You know, she wasn't saying you shouldn't. She was saying, I cannot yes. do that. Yeah. And that's incredibly beautiful and touching. It's an interesting thing that you say that because what I find myself rediscovering over and over again in my own work with cultivating myself as a leader, but also in my work with other women, is that 
is rediscovering the truth of that phrase from the, from the early feminist movement that the personal is political. That as we reclaim our own stories, it's our, it's our very own telling of our personal stories that, what has, that is what has the greatest capacity to transform each other. And even as I was working with uh, my co-editor on the Moonrise book, there were some of the women's stories that were told in the third person. And often because women have to achieve a high level of education in our culture to be taken seriously in the business or professional world, once they've gone through a master's degree or a PhD, they stop trusting their own capacity to speak from the eye. And so there were several of them that we kept going back and going back and saying, could you please make this more personal? Could you speak about yourself? Because I think we've all had an insidious cultural conditioning to not do that. Mm -hmm. And I think it's one of our greatest tools. Absolutely. When you were saying that, um, I had another question that I was going to ask, and I might ask it afterwards, but this is what I would like to, you to speak to. It's the question of power in, and I will put it in women, for women at, at this moment, you know. I was reflecting last night about how I was conditioned, even if I don't act like a victim, because the world, some of the world, some part of the world is made up of perpetrators like you know there's nothing I can do about EMFs the perpetrators are imposing them on me or or the, the bombs or you know so there's a part of me that that always has an underlying no longer about my family perpetrators or the fact that my Jewish family was killed yeah of course but I don't feel like a victim about that anymore but there is an underlying feeling of being victimized by the big perpetrators, the corporations, etc. So how could you inspire women who know they feel that way, even if they act in a powerful way in the world? Speak, speak about power. <laughs> True power for a woman. Um, well, I mean... I have to say that I don't honestly know how much I know about this. I only know that I'm in an ongoing inquiry about it. And that one of my first realizations about it was that um, many of us, myself included, seem to have an aversion to power that is defined as power over. You know, it's why when we first started teaching this Cultivating Women's Leadership Intensive, we had women contact us and say, well, I'd love to learn with a bunch of smart, juicy, engaged women, but I'm not so sure about this leadership thing. Mm -hmm. and, and we kept, you know, so we would deconstruct it with them. And we eventually built it into part of the intensive to really look at that because we, we tend to associate leadership with a, a model of power 
that we have inherited that is very insidiously and deeply embedded within us mm-hmm. and that tends to imply uh, a dominance and, a, and an aggression and a someone wins and someone loses, mm-hmm. a zero-sum game. Um, and I think that because we've inherited that definition, it's taken us away from, it's distracted us, in fact, from the essence of power which is the power of the sacred life force that wants to come up through the bottoms of our feet and that is an expression of the power of nature and the beauty and the sacredness of life on earth. Um, So one of the first things I realized was that the people I saw being the most powerful were the ones who gave themselves permission to be the most passionate, Mm -hmm. to love the most fiercely, and that that was an expression of power that had nothing to do with the might makes right paradigm, but instead it was this magnificent outpouring of love that translates into a tremendous Uh, raw, energetic power um, that people like Martin Luther King and Gandhi, you know, come to mind, um, carried and were instruments of. And, you know, I think think there is... So I think that there's tremendous value to encouraging ourselves toward what we most love, towards serving what we most love in an unbridled way, you know, in a way that says this is the most magnificent expression of this instrument's moment on earth at this time. And how do we really open the floodgates to let that be expressed? Um, And... So that's one thing that I wanted to mention. Another is that, you know, one of the things I realized is that instead of power over, we can think about power to accomplish things, power to make change, and power with. And for me, one of the exciting ways that we are reinventing what leadership is about and what it looks like is that it's not a solo act anymore. (laughs) Uh, You know, I'm not interested in being a solitary, self-sacrificial, heroic. um, It's it's, uh, a lifestyle and a choice that doesn't look very appealing to me or to most of the people I know. Mm -hmm. And on the contrary, you know, leadership with and power with is tremendously exciting. And... It acknowledges nature's cycles of which we are a part, right? So leadership with and power with gives us the opportunity to rest when we need to rest and to tag team each other and to say, you're better at this than I am, so would you do this part? Because I can't, you know? And, And that's the only kind of leadership and power that I'm really interested in. And then the third thing I wanted to say is that my most recent discovery about power has to do with anger. Um, I had an opportunity recently to experience something that's called 
the Hoffman Quadrinity process. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you've heard of it. I've heard of it. Yeah. It's an eight-day process that was um, designed by a fellow in the 70s named Bob Hoffman. And it's really designed around the idea that as children, we grow in the same way that plants grow toward the sunlight, we grow toward the sunlight of our parents' love. Mm-hmm. And since none of us had parents who were necessarily paragons of unconditional love, we grew in ways that were guided by the patterns and the conditioning that our parents have. So you go through this very elaborate, systematic review of your parent, what they call your parents' negative love patterns. Mm-hmm. And then you go through a very physicalized, ritualized, all-out expression of the anger that lives somewhere deep, I'm convinced, within us all, um, about not having your needs fulfilled as a child. Mm-hmm. And, and you do that in a ritualistic way of bashing those patterns because, of course, if they were alive in your parents, there's a pretty good chance they're alive in you. Mm-hmm. And so it was an opportunity to experience my own raw anger in a way that I don't think I ever have before. And it felt to me as though there were whole octaves of the instrument that is this body that got opened up as a result of that. So I'm on this inquiry about how, you know, and I keep I keep thinking on a social on a society-wide level how how much women are conditioned to not express anger and not just women, men as well in a different way. Um, but but I keep thinking about how as we are being assaulted in the ways that you mentioned from EMFs to chemicals to our tax dollars being spent on war to, you know, on and on and on, that if we were actually in touch with our anger in a healthy way, that the healthy expression of anger is about a violation of boundaries. And if we knew how to express our own anger, we would have been out on the streets a long time ago. Yes! <laughs> so that's, that's a new piece of my purpose falling into place is, hmm, how do we rekindle a healthy relationship to anger as a means of reclaiming a right relationship to power? This is delicious. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad you think so. <laughs> oh, yeah. So we will bring the spiral of our conversation around. And um, I, um, I feel I want to ask you a question about community. Mm-hmm. I mean, you are, in my view, a great, a great uh, creator of a community through the community of Bioneers and the community of your leadership programs. Um, but what about, you know, I just went to this conference and these fabulous elders were talking about know your community, get together with your community, and they were just relentless about that. Mm-hmm. And almost the humility of saying, maybe we don't know anything, but we do know about community these indigenous elders. And so to those who feel isolated, 
um, in this weird time. Would you give us your thoughts and feelings about how we can come closer? Hmm. That's a beautiful question. Um, hmm. Well, what you heard from the indigenous elders is also what I've been hearing from both indigenous and non-indigenous teachers for a long time. And it coincides with, you know, what I was experiencing as the economic system was crumbling in this country in 2008. I kept thinking to myself, well, <clears throat> it's just revealing the true insecurity of the systems that we live within. And that the only real security from this point on is the web of relations that we are connected to. Um, and I think that it's one of the sad side effects of this factionalized culture we live in mm -hmm. and of so many of us being so uprooted from our lineage um, that we do tend to be isolated. Um, you know, for me, uh, connecting to community is about bringing it to the forefront of my consciousness mm. as a choice mm. and remembering to prioritize it during the course of my days. Mm. And for me, community means a number of different things. Um, it means connection to place. So it means that each day, you know, I walk twice a day in the woods. My dogs, my wonderful canine friends walk me twice a day. And so that's my communing time with that place. And that's a time when I don't just walk. I find myself very consciously connecting with the scent of the ponderosa's bark and seeing how dry the earth is and how the birds are doing and just really noticing and attuning to it. Um, and I also find myself choosing to invest a little bit more in relationship with my neighbors um, because I know that I know that there's a lot I don't know but what I do know is that we're entering into a time of more unexpected change in more ways than we uh, would like or are accustomed to. And so if our food supplies aren't so easily available and we can't go to the grocery store, I want to know which of my neighbors is growing food. And I want to know who I can borrow a cup of rice from. And if we have to huddle together, I want to know who I want to be with. Um, and, you know, and similarly, for me, I'm finding that there is a part of me that's nourished by my community with my partner, you know, which is in a way my closest familial community, my partner and our two dogs. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, there's another community that is um, my work community, my collegial community, who are another level of, of tribal connection to me. 
Um, and then there's the community that is this town that I've chosen to live in. And for many years, because Bioneer's work has been so national in scope, we have been less involved and less invested in this local town and community. And so I'm finding myself wanting to get more involved in local community. And there are a lot of great ways to do that now. You know, farmers markets are wonderful because there you get to actually have a relationship with somebody who's growing your food. And how great is that? Mm -hmm. And um, my mother's all involved in the time bank now, which is fantastic. And, you know, Santa Fe has a time bank that's doubled in size in the last month. And it's fantastic. People from all professions and all walks of life are joining it. And it's a very beautiful exchange of goods and services that presupposes a complete equality. So whether you're a dentist or a house painter or a gardener, your hour is worth the same as somebody else's. And it's a very simple, basic exchange of what I have and what you need and how can we help fill each other's gaps. And it's very beautiful because what I love about it is that it's actually exchanging this false currency that has become so sort of toxic, right, and and invested with false values with connection and community. Because when you trade gardening in your yard for painting somebody's house, you actually get to relate to them and you get to know people. And so it it rebuilds the web of community while getting your needs met. How lovely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And creating a culture of abundance, you know. Yeah. So Nina, this um, this has been like music to me, <laughs> um, an an art we have shared together, and uh, I'd like to ask you, what would you like to say in closing? Well, it's it's been an honor to visit with you, and so sweet to me after all these years of knowing you and learning from you and admiring you from mm-hmm. afar. Mm-hmm. It's very sweet to have this intimate time together. Thank you. Yeah. And um, we're on such parallel paths. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But it's delicious for me, too. And uh, what would I like to say in closing? I think I I would just offer hmm, I would offer what I find useful to hear for myself and and a bit of a prayer. Um, I, I would just suggest that it can be very useful to remind ourselves that what we are and who we are is enough to bring to this moment. Mm -hmm. That we don't need to strive to become anything else. Mm -hmm. We need to allow the fullness and the gift of who each of us is to come forward and flourish because the earth and our whole extended sacred web of relations really needs us now. Mm-hmm. And I would offer my hope and my prayer 
that we remember that hmm, those of us who are privileged in one or another way by this crazy lopsided system that we've inherited have an enormous opportunity and responsibility to use that privilege on behalf of those who have had a harder time and have not had the benefits of those privileges. And and I would wish that we can all be informed by our wounds but not defined by them. Mm -hmm. And that we can opt to stretch ourselves and do the edge walking to connect across differences because we need each other really, really in big and important ways right now. And I would ask all that and suggest all that not because it's the responsible thing to do or the right thing to do, but in my experience, it's also the most joyful thing to do. Thank you so much, Nina. Future Primitive is made possible by the Marion Institute. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider supporting our work by making a tax-deductible contribution online at futureprimitive.org.